This morning, as I said, the title is Stephen, a profile in courage. Or I could even say in godly courage. Uh, back when, uh, before John F. Kennedy was president, he wrote a book that was a, a bestseller, and it was called Profiles in Courage. Well, this is a profile in spirit-filled or godly courage. And the big idea this morning is kind of a takeaway where we want to say, what's, what's, what's the main focus here is this, is godly character. Godly character is the basis for courageous, for a courageous witness for Jesus Christ, no matter what the results. A lot of times we're very result-oriented when God is saying, look, I just want you to be faithful to me. I want you to be obedient to me. I want you just to do, let the results, let me worry about the results. You be a person of character. You honor me with a life of obedience, and we'll see Stephen as a great example of this. When I was thinking about even just this morning, early this morning, I was thinking about heroes. Think about uh, who the heroes maybe of your generation were. I remember, uh, even though I'm a little older, but I still got in on the 90s a little bit, uh, but you remember when we wanted to be like Mike? Michael Jordan? And everything was be like Mike. Every generation has its heroes. Sadly, and I hope it's not me just being old, grumpy old man, but I'm not sure who all those heroes are that we can honor today. Probably I would say they wear a uniform like uh, Nancy's son uh, uh, in the military as a helicopter pilot, and many of you who have served, those are the heroes of any generation, right? Uh, the men and women who uh, take uniform, and not just in overseas, but the men and women here in our own community, our police, our sheriff's department, fire department, emergency services, those are the heroes day in and day out that are, that are showing and demonstrating uh, their commitment and character to serving one another. But in our culture, I mean, good grief, it's certainly in the Hollywood or the, or the music culture, really had never has been. Uh, sports, that's even taken a, a decline. I mean, that's, it's getting more and more difficult to even really be engaged with sports because of just, you know, all the stuff, the baggage that comes with it. And so Stephen provides a great example as, you could say, a hero that we should uh, draw attention to. And this morning, we're gonna, uh, I'm going to split this up because chapter 7, and I would ask you, can I give you some homework? How many of you like homework? Nobody likes homework. So, uh, but, but do it anyway. Uh, but sometime between now and next Sunday, take time to read chapter 7, because chapter 7, the entire chapter is a sermon that, that Stephen gives before these individuals that have seized him and brought him before this council. And when you read that sermon, we probably are not going to go into it in any detail because it just would be too long. But what you're going to see when you read chapter 7 is Stephen stands and gives a defense for Jesus. You're going to see Stephen give a wonderful timeline of biblical history that shows that the coming of Christ is consistent with the entire plan of God. It's a, it's a great sermon, and, and take time to read it and show how, beginning with Abraham and the promise and all the prophets and how it led to Jesus. And he's speaking before his fellow Jews, giving a defense of who Jesus is. We uh, might call that, uh, or some people, we call it apologetics. And it's not you know, apologizing for things. Apologetics means to give a defense for. And so he's giving a defense to his fellow Jewish brethren that Jesus Christ isn't just some cult figure that popped into history, but he's the promised Messiah 
that God has promised from the beginning of history, from the beginning of biblical history, and all that God has done in biblical history has been leading to the coming of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful, wonderful treatment of of biblical history that has Christ at the center of it, and I encourage you to read it. But this morning, I want us just to focus not so much on Stephen's message, and even his, ultimately, his, we, he's called a martyr. You know what a martyr is? That is someone who is killed because of their witness for Christ. They are killed because of their faith in Christ. And eventually, Stephen became the first martyr of the church, that he was killed because of his witness and faith in Jesus Christ. You and I, more than likely, will probably not face martyrdom. It's possible, it's possible, but we probably won't. You know, sometimes we think we're being persecuted because somebody snarls at uh, maybe our uh, bumper sticker, if you have a bumper sticker or you have a, a fish, or hopefully it's the fish going the right direction without feet. You've seen those. But, uh, but you know, we think persecution is, is somebody being uh, uh, less than uh, kind to us at the DMV or something like that. My friends, that's not persecution. We, most of us don't have any clue. I mean, we do have persecution that comes from within family. There's families where they have maybe rejected uh, your, your that relationship, and it's not a warm relationship because of your faith in Christ. I'm not, I'm not uh, minimizing that, but the type of persecution that's being experienced by many, perhaps even a majority of Christian brothers and sisters around the world is staggering. In fact, if you want to uh, look up, notice how the persecution in China has intensified in the past few years, that churches are being torn down again presently, right now, they're being torn down again, and so the churches that might have had a picture of Jesus in their, in their building, they're taking that down and replacing it with a picture of the chairman of the Communist Party and the, the leader of China putting his picture up there. So there is an intensification of persecution going on right now in China. So when you pick up that product and it says made in China, just always pray for those believers that are over in China that are suffering for the gospel. That's not even taking in Pakistan and Iran and Egypt and other nations and other countries and where the persecution is intensified. Now, I've mentioned this before. Uh, familiarize yourself with organizations like Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, they, that's a wonderful, they have a website and they really keep track on persecution, the persecuted church. Uh, around the world, and uh, and you can get their magazine for free, and you will, I tell you, it will humble you when you see how people are enduring uh, persecution, and lives and families are being threatened, even killed, and homes being burned. Unless I've been out to lunch, I'm not aware that that's happening in Lakeland or Polk County. Hello? It, it's just not. But that doesn't mean to say that we could see it as a day coming uh, in the future. But nevertheless, Stephen was one who was murdered or martyred uh, for his commitment and his bold witness for Christ. And so this morning, instead, we're going to look at the message and him as a martyr next week. But this morning, I want us to look at the man, the man of Stephen. And it uh, draws some, there's in chapter 6 in the text that we're going to look at, this morning, there's five uh, qualities or characteristics of Stephen's life that I think are worth noting, because to really appreciate and understand uh, his bold witness for Christ and eventual his martyrdom 
really it helps us to understand who was this man, what, what type of man was he. And I want us just to notice five of these characteristics that we see uh, in Scripture. The first of, uh, that would make note of is that Stephen was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 6, verse 3. When they were choosing among them deacons, uh, one of the criteria is they must be people, these men must be men who are full of the Holy Spirit. That's a good quality in a leader, right? It's a good quality in a Christian is to be full of the Holy Spirit. They must be full of the Holy Spirit. At the end of uh, chapter 7, verse 55, it notes that Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit. It says it twice. So what motivated him? It wasn't that he was just a great speaker. It wasn't that he could just wow the crowd. It wasn't even about his knowledge, but the strength of what he was saying came as a result of his spirit-filled character, he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. He was one of those men that were filled with the Spirit and were functioning uh, in the promise of what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, to go and to wait, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be filled with what? With power. And that word, uh, we get power, is the word dunamis in the Greek. And that's a word that is rooted, uh, that the word dynamite is rooted back to. When the founder, you know Alfred Nobel, you've heard me say this, the founder of the Nobel Peace Prize, do you realize he invented dynamite? How ironic. The peace man invented dynamite, and when he was looking for a word, he went back and got a root of that word dunamis to name this invention called dynamite. So it was power. It was to give you an idea of the, the force of this power. Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit, and all seven of these men chosen were full of the Holy Spirit. They had to have a good reputation. That was important, but it says the criteria is they must be people full of the Holy Spirit. What do we mean by being controlled by the Holy Spirit? Is that some kind of out-of-body experience? Is it some mystical thing? Is it some ecstatic thing, that experience? It really just means that you must be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Those of you who have been coming uh, in a part of our study on Wednesday night in Galatians, you remember that we spent time talking about the fruit of the Spirit and, and walking in the Holy Spirit, and Galatians says a lot about that. And so in look at verse uh, 10, it says that they could not withstand the wisdom of what, what Stephen was saying and the Spirit with which he was speaking. And so it wasn't, again, just him, but God was using him. God was using his voice. God was using him as a man to speak to this group. He was speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit. That reminds me of something that Jesus promised his disciples back in Luke 12, 11 and 12. I don't, uh, you may want to just make a little notation in your, maybe your margin of your Bible or a note or something. Jesus told his disciples that when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to to say. He was a man operating in the Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit. The Bible in uh, Galatians 5 says that the evidences of the Spirit, sometimes we talk about the evidence of the Spirit. Well, the Bible says in Galatians 5 that the evidences or the fruit of the Spirit, those are the qualities that demonstrate the Spirit-filled believer, the Spirit-filled life. You remember those? Uh, love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the fullness and walking in the Holy Spirit. Those are developed over time. Now, fruit, and and again, sorry for those of you who are on Wednesday because I'm kind of going over some material we covered, but the fruit of the Spirit, you know, that's not something you put the seed in the ground and overnight you go back out and it's like Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, it's all covered over the whole... It's not like that. You put that seed in the ground, and you go out, and you just, you know, you're waiting. Will that thing ever grow? Will that tree ever grow? And it takes time. And sometimes the first fruit that's grown by that tree is usually sometimes what? Sour. It's not so great. It takes time. Well, that's a good picture of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is that picture of the maturing the growth of the believer. Stephen, it doesn't say how much time lapsed between uh, his uh, work in the church and where he finds himself in this among these uh, enemies of the faith, but it says that he was full of the Spirit. I believe that has to do with him being a person who walked and demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit, a maturing. Yeah, fruit of the Spirit is not acting more religious. It's not acting more religious. It's not carrying a bigger Bible. The fruit of the Spirit is that character that people see in your life. A person who claims to be a Christian, but whose character is ungodly, here's some advice. Tell them just to be quiet. (laughs) Don't embarrass the rest of us. Because there's nothing that brings more shame to believers, to the glory of God, is for a person who is big on talk, but their walk is inconsistent with what they're saying. Hypocrisy. What do people often say about the church? The church is full of? And you know what? I say, yeah, you're right. None of us are consistent and perfect. We're all hypocritical in some measure of our life. Let's just be honest, right? And I say, but you know, we could always use one more hypocrite, so come to Grace Church. We'll welcome you. But in seriousness, none of us are perfectly consistent. But the person who believes that they are someone who is godly, and yet, you know, I was thinking of this. When a person wants to become an elder, what's one of the, what's one of the criteria? It says that uh, in 1 Timothy 3, 7, they must have a good reputation with who? Outsiders. Why do you think that's important? Because we can put on a pretty good facade here at church, right? P- really good, perfect, right? Good facade. But you want to find out what so-and-so is like and you want them to be a leader in the church? Ask the people that work with them. Ask the people that are engaging with them Monday through Friday. Ask the people where they go out of town and how they act when they're away from those constraints of family and, and uh, people that might know them. Are they consistent? Is their life a match with what they say and what they do? That's being a person who is full of the Holy Spirit. It's very vital, and that was the top criteria of the appointment of these leaders, and it certainly was the premier uh, characteristic of Stephen. But notice, secondly, not only was he full of the Holy Spirit, but the Bible says that he was full of wisdom. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, that was a second qualification. They must, uh, after being full of the Spirit, 
uh, or the third qualification, being good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. Verse uh, 10 uh, that we looked at earlier that says uh, that, uh, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. And again, he, this, the, that's what chapter 7 is, is this, this message that him standing boldly before these individuals and proclaiming Christ and connecting the Scripture. They could not argue. They could not refute because he was a man, it says, of wisdom. What is wisdom? Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Wisdom, for our understanding as a Christian, wisdom comes from knowing God, and the Scriptures reveal His wisdom. Someone has said this, that wisdom is the right application of knowledge. There's a lot of people that are smart, have a lot of knowledge, but they're not wise. You ever known anybody like that? They're brilliant. They're brilliant. But they do some very unwise things. Stephen was a man of wisdom. What's interesting is the word wisdom comes from the Hebrew word that means skill. And that's tied back, uh, if you again, you just want to make a note of this, Exodus 36, 1 and 2. It's used in the Old Testament in Exodus 36 of the craftsmen that had skill to make the tabernacle and the furniture. They had a supernatural wisdom or skill. And so the nuance here in referring in that word and connecting it with Stephen is, is that it speaks of a life, living a life of right conduct in obedience to the will of God, to the word of God. It's not just mastering a body of knowledge. But it's wisdom from God that's seen in the right application or skill of this knowledge. The Bible says that God's wisdom, God's wisdom is seen in the cross. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 24? It says, to those who are perishing, the cross is foolishness. But to those who have been called by God, Christ is both the power of God, and it says, and the wisdom of God. The cross. So you want to be a wise person? You want to be a wise guy or wise gal? Get knowledgeable about the cross because that's where God's wisdom is focused in the cross of Christ. To people full of wisdom, we need to grow in our understanding of Christ, in the gospel, in the cross, all that. That that is where the wisdom of God. Why? Because it's in the cross that human pride is slain and defeated when we look. That's the reason Paul said it's foolishness. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks that think they know everything and the philosophize of the Greeks. It, it, it doesn't make sense, but to us, it's the power of God. We've been looking again on uh, Wednesday night in Galatians, and we were reminded that every system... This was the problem going on in Galatians. Every system of salvation that mingles human good works with God's grace nullifies the cross and is opposed to God's wisdom. 
That's the problem of what we've been looking at in Galatians on Wednesday night. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, he said, I will only boast, I will only glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen was full of wisdom. It wasn't that he was just smarter than everybody, but he was full of the wisdom of God. Thirdly, the Bible says that he was a man who was full of faith. In verse 5 of chapter 6, that when they made the decision to appoint these seven, it says this about Stephen, and what they, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, and what does it say? A man full of faith. Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty two to have faith in God. Faith in faith is not faith. Faith must be in God. Some that uh, peddle the word of faith, prosperity, teaching, define faith as some kind of force. It's not a force. Faith is not a, uh, uh, it's not a positive energy by making sure you use positive words. Faith is in God. My faith is in who He is. My faith is in the character of God. It's not in my ability to speak positive or to say positive words or just if I just create this belief over and over that somehow I'm apprehending the force of faith. That is a false teaching. And don't harbor it. Don't look in it. Don't run from that nonsense. Because it's contrary to Scripture. Hebrews 11.1, 1, that's oftentimes quoted and misquoted, listen to what it says. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Where is our faith? It isn't just in this, this immaterial force of faith. Our faith is in God. That's the reason you're here, to know God, to learn about God. Study the Bible. Know God. Know the character of God. Study the attributes of God. Be full of God, and you will be full of faith. And there's great confusion it's faith in someone. It's faith in God. It's faith in Christ. Stephen was a man of faith. He had faith in the sovereignty of God. Remember back in Acts chapter 2 when Peter was preaching that message? He spoke and addressed about the sovereignty of God even in the death of Christ. Do you realize the cross, the death of Christ, was part of the sovereign plan of Almighty God? It wasn't an accident. Things didn't get out of hand. Jesus went at the wrong place at the wrong time. Do you realize Jesus' death was part of the sovereign plan of God? That's what Peter said in Acts 2.23, that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
God did this. God put forth Jesus. God designed salvation. God determined Jesus to be born. Back in Genesis 3.15, in fact, the Bible even says that before the foundations of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. Try to figure that out. Try to figure that out. But in Genesis 3.15, in humanity's darkest hour, when they rebelled and rejected God, God said, I will bring forth a seed from the woman, and his uh, heel will be bruised. That speaks of a temporary wound, but he, this seed, will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first prophetic promise in Scripture of Jesus Christ and His coming. And the outworking of that began in Genesis 3.15 all the way up to the coming of Christ. God has had one plan. Sometimes you'll hear people or say, you know, I just what is God doing now? God's doing, been do, God is doing now what He's been doing for all eternity. You ever hear people say that? What's God doing now? What's the revelation now? What's he saying now? He's saying the same thing he's been saying from the beginning of time. <laughs> All right? If you want to know what God is saying, pick up this book and you'll hear God speak as often as you want. He was a full of faith kind of man. I want more faith. And I know that isn't through all the other exercises and means that sometimes people attach to it, but I know it means in growing in God, growing in my relationship with God, growing in His Word. And again, I'm not talking about knowledge of God. I'm talking about knowledge that is combined with wisdom, that the Spirit of God takes His Word and, and, and shows me how wonderful and great God is and that I can be a man full of faith that even when I see my circumstances and trials and sufferings that doesn't seem to have any rhyme or reason, I can say, but I know that God works all things together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. I affirm that God is in control. That's faith. I don't know if Stephen quoted this verse. Very likely he could have. Psalm 56, 11. In God I trust and I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith. Fourth, he was full of grace. Why? Because he was full of Jesus. The Bible says in John 1:14 that Jesus was full of grace and truth. But it says he was full of grace. Jesus was God's grace personified. God's grace. Stephen's, the phrase here, um, I believe, implies that he had a personal experience of God's grace. There was a transformation spiritually that he personally was affected by through the gospel, through a relationship with Jesus Christ. He understood grace and what made him such an enemy of these people that had brought, to, brought him around this trial. It's because it wasn't that they were faithful to the law. It wasn't they were faithful to the Old Testament. It's the same kind of group that we see in Galatians. They had built a cult around Moses. They built a cult around Moses as their redeemer. But you know what? Moses didn't even have that theology. Moses had a view of a coming Messiah. Do you remember what Moses said? I'll read it to you in Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses himself said to the Israelites, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. 
from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. That was a, that was a, a, a prophecy that he was speaking about one who would come, who would be more than what Moses could do. He would be more than what the prophets could do. He would be more than even King David, what he could do. He would be one that would come as a model of Moses, but he would come as one who would be the perfect sent one from God. And so this group had built a cult around Moses and the law, but here was Stephen. You know what got him in trouble? He was boasting in the grace of God. He was boasting in the cross. He was boasting in the finished work of Christ. He was talking about not the old covenant. He was talking about the new covenant, that Jesus Christ is the new lawgiver. We are under the law of Christ, not of Moses. We don't keep the Sabbath. We don't keep the dietary laws. We don't keep all those things that were only pointers to the one who was to come. We have Jesus. That's what the writer of Colossians, Paul, was all about. He said, why do you want to get fixated on the shadow of these things that only were shadows and types when you have the reality of Christ? That's what religion will do. It will get you obsessed with shadows and types and images that make you feel more religious by keeping a lot of rules and regulations. But we have Christ who has set us free. Jesus is our lawgiver. When we look to Jesus, we look to him as the author and finisher, completer of our faith. Had he been alive, I think Peter or Stephen would have said amen to what Paul would write, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, but it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. But I think also this being full of grace tells us something else, is that a person who understands and lives and has been changed by the grace of God, have you ever noticed how that should make a difference in their demeanor, in their life, a person who's been affected by the grace of God? Someone who's selfish and mean and all of a sudden now they're, can I say it, men? They're kind of sweet. <laughs> they're gentle. Why? Where does that come from? What is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit it's just an outgrowth of the Spirit's work in your life. The Holy Spirit, it's the Spirit of Christ. It's the presence of Christ. And if there's not an evidence of these characteristics, if a person doesn't, doesn't if we don't see that change, we call it transformation. If there's no evidence of that, you begin to say, like Jesus, a tree is known by its what? In other words, you can look at a tree and say, talk about its health. By looking at it and making an observation that if there's no growth, if there's no life, if there's no fruit on that tree, it might be, might be because the roots are dead and rotten. But see, religion will give you cover for a while, won't it? Right? Church attendance, you know, good works keeping all the regiments, even good things that, that God uses. 
a regimented Bible reading time, a regimented doing this or doing that, and if it's the basis, if it's, if it's not the outworking of God's wonderful grace that I, I want to, man, I want to know more of God. I want to serve his people. I, I, wanna, I, I want all this. I, I don't have time to do all the things to express how the grace of God has affected my life, but if it's all about making me feel safer and more secure by the more things I do and the more things I check off, then you know what? Again, that's what religion is. Religion is that dutiful drudgery of checking the box, of doing this and doing that, instead of why do I do these things? Why do I serve? Why do I share Christ? Why do I read Scripture? Why do I pray? It's because now I've been so full of God's mercy and grace, I can't help but want to know him more. I can't help but want to tell people more. When I think about God's grace and I think about all the mercy that God has given to me, don't you think that should temper our attitudes and the way we treat one another? You remember the parable when Jesus talked about the man who was forgave a massive debt? Massive debt, impossible debt. And he went and found some beer buddy that owed him and was ready to throw him in jail for that debt. And the king found out about it. You see, because he didn't understand the gracious provision that was given to him by how he responded to someone else. Jesus was asked, what are the great, what's, the, what's the greatest commandment? To love God and to love one another. Those two things, he said, the law hangs on. Worshiping God and how you treat one another. If the grace of God has not tempered and softened your demeanor. My dad was a tough Marine from World War II, went into the police force, and he was a hard, tough guy. Thankfully, before I was born, he took it all out on my brothers. <laughs> But when I was born, he had become a Christian. He had become a believer. His demeanor, his attitude, his heart, his life changed. He was a sweeter man. That's the only man I know. I don't know the B.C. man. I know the man that God had his grace changed and transformed his life. And I'm sure that's true of you. Last is that he was full of power. He was full of power. Full of power. Power, not because he chased after somebody to give him some power. He was powerful because he was full of the Spirit. He was full of God's wisdom. He was full of faith. He was full of grace. Verse 8 of chapter 6 said that Stephen performed great wonders and signs among the people. It's interesting because only... Besides the 12 apostles, it's Stephen, Philip, and Barnabas outside of those apostles that are, are told that they performed miracles. I think part of it is because the apostles laid hands on them and it was an extension of their authority. That word in verse uh, 8, when it says, uh, uh, verse 8 says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing or performing great wonders and signs, that word means that it was something he was doing frequently. It wasn't just a once in a while. It was something that he was doing frequently. And, you know, we've talked about this, that the importance of these miracles and signs were to confirm the authority 
of these apostles. Now again, the Bible doesn't teach, and I don't believe that, uh, that these were completely done away with, but I think we need to make sure that we understand that in this period of time and the development of the church and the role of the apostles, there was a unique uh, bestowal of these miracles that were taking place. Why? Because they confirmed the authority of what the apostles were teaching and what they were saying. Today, we have God's Word that we validate truth. They did not have a Bible. They did not have Scripture. Yes, does God do miracles? Yes, He's sovereign. He can do whatever He wants. But we see the frequency and regularity lessen because of the uniqueness of this of this church that was in like a transitional. The church is growing. The church is developing. And we see some of these things that are not as frequent when we come to the epistles of Paul and the writings of Paul in the early church. Obviously, they're going on because Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, and, and so we understand all that. But what I want to point out is that Stephen was operating under that covering of these apostles, that as he was going out, he was unique in this role, like Philip, we'll see when we come to chapter 8, is that he was functioning in signs and wonders among the people. So not only was he a, a powerful man in the Word of God, but also that he was, he was demonstrating the authority of that God had given these apostles. But let me not minimize when we talk about God's power, because sometimes we only think of God's power in relationship to the miraculous. But you know something? Uh, God's mighty power is also shown in our lives, in the lives of others, when we wait, when we are patient and joyful in the midst of trials. Do you realize that's as much depending on God's power as what we sometimes call the miraculous? someone who endures patiently and joyfully even in the midst of trials. You know who I thought of, and some of you are familiar, and if you're not, you need to get familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata, a woman who in 1967 dove in the Chesapeake Bay after misjudging the shallowness of the water, and she suffered a fracture between the fourth and fifth cervical levels and became a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down. She founded Johnny and Friends in 1979, a ministry to accelerate, she says, Christian ministry in the disability community and throughout the world. She established a disability center in California. But she said this. Let me, I said that to read this quote in case you're not familiar with her. I know early on Billy Graham did a movie. How many of you ever saw the, the, the film? That's how back it was. We called them films. Johnny. That's very dated and old, but it's her story, and it's worth watching. But, but be acquainted with Johnny Erickson Tata. I had the privilege uh, of one time being a at a dinner and sitting next to her, and you heard me say I made a catastrophic mistake. I was trying to chit-chat and talk, and I was familiar with her books, but I made the mistake of making reference to one book that she wrote about heaven, which, by the way, I did read. But at the time, I said something. I had not read it. I was familiar with it, and she asked me to my horror, well, what did you like about the book? Uh, it was about heaven, and that really, <laughs> you know, it was so complex, Johnny, I, uh, I feel I would be doing you a disservice to just single out one chapter. Um, can you pass the, the salad over there? Uh, I don't know what I said, but I died a thousand deaths, and I thought, I will never do that again. Listen to something she said, and we'll wrap it up. She said this, and again, I'm talking about God's power and making this connection 
that God's power and his miracle isn't necessarily always just seen in a person who is healed and a dramatic uh, healing of, and that's certainly we give God glory to that, but also God's power and strength in those who are given the power to endure even without healing. Hello? Listen to what she says. She says, people often ask me and they'll say, don't you think God was just laying on you a little too much? Because not only is she was a quadriplegic, she also uh, was diagnosed with uh, cancer. Someone said, don't you think God is just laying on you a little too much cancer? On top of chronic pain, on top of decades of quadriplegia? She says, well, is it too much for me? Would it be too much for you if that were God's choice of lemon in your life? Notice her calling such tragedy in her life a lemon. To this you were called, it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. She says, oh my goodness, I want to follow in his steps. And if my Savior learned obedience... That the things which through the things that he suffered, I'm not above my master. God is still doing a deeper healing, testing and trying and seeing if there's any offensive way in me. My friend, that is a powerful witness of someone who can remain and for all practical purposes will die in a wheelchair, so to speak. And yet will give glory to God and say, if this is what my master has chosen for me, then I will give glory to God in my wheelchair. You see, our confused theology in America, we kind of bristle at some of that because it's God wants you healthy. He always wants you wealthy. And if there's, any, if there's a cold, if there's a headache, it must be a demon or don't confess it or you'll get it worse. That's a phony theology and you need to erase it because, again, God, why are you allowing me to go through this? Because if God is sovereign, yes, he allows us to go through sufferings. He allows us to go through trials. Yes, he allows us to go through cancer, right, Lori Maffey, right? And yet give glory to God even in my suffering. I will give glory in my suffering. I will demonstrate the power of God in my suffering. Do you think Johnny wants to be healed? You bet she does. But you know what? She's not spending her life worrying about being healed. And to observe her at a dinner where she travels with another woman, just seeing her navigate using a fork with special arm braces and all those things is humbling, yet for her to do it with joy. Joy. Not giddy, phony happiness, but a joy of the Lord that is her strength. My friend, that's power. That's the power of God working in that woman's life. And those of you who endure such pain and suffering, we do not have, and this may again sound a little crazy, but we do not have a good biblical understanding, I'm afraid, in most of our churches of what the Bible teaches about suffering. Some of you right now, and I won't say your name, you're enduring chronic pain even here. And I know you could say, well, it's because you need to wrap this sermon up. That's why I have chronic pain. But I'm not talking about that kind of pain. <laughs> and when I pray for you and Sean prays for you and Jim prays for you, 
I don't know about them, but I tell you, I'm humbled when I see that you're faithful and you're coming and you're here and you're in great pain. That's a powerful witness to me, and I know it is to others. It says in verse 15, as we close, it says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like that of a what? It's like an angel. It wasn't it, it didn't saying that he is an angel. And I don't know what that was. I don't know what that was. The, the closest thing I thought of was that you remember when Moses came down from the mountain and the Bible says that his face shined with a radiant glow? Could there be a connection that when you're in the presence of God, it'll be reflected on your countenance? I believe that. Stephen is getting ready to see Jesus face to face. He's going to be, he's going to be stoned to death. And everyone, it says, observed that his face was like that of an angel. There was something that was just different. And I think we know what that difference is. He knew Christ and he spent time in the presence of God, full of the Spirit full of power, full of wisdom, full of grace. That's how, how do you get all that? You get it not just knowing about God, but you get it through having a relationship with Christ and spending time in His presence. Let's stand to our feet as we close this morning.